Langston Hughes. Thank you, Jill Rita Montgomery and CJ, and thanks for listening. Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. Today's guests are prize-winning author Elaine Ellenson and popular radio DJ and radio journalist Greg Bridges. Together, we will explore the new volume of Selected Letters of Langston Hughes, edited by Arnold Rampersad and David Roselle, with Krista Fratantaro and published by Alfred Knopf. Elaine Ellenson will review the book and select excerpts of Langston Hughes's letters and poems to be read by Greg Bridges. Welcome Elaine Ellenson, whose full review first appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you so much, Nina. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to Poet to Poet, Greg Bridges. Thank you, Nina. It's an honor to read the work of Langston Hughes. I'll begin with his famous poem, "What Happens to a Dream Deferred." What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then rot? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? These eleven short lines are one of Hughes's most famous works from his 1951 book *Montage of a Dream Deferred*. The question of race in America is one of his most persistent themes. This new volume of Langston Hughes's letters gives us greater insight into Hughes's own dreams and the experiences and passions that shaped his writing. Langston Hughes was dubbed the original jazz poet by novelist and Fisk University librarian Arna Bontemps. The title is well deserved. Best known for his evocative poetry that gave voice to jazz singers, sharecroppers, Pullman porters, seafarers, busboys, the despondent, and the dreamers, Hughes was also widely published in many other literary genres. He wrote plays, short stories, children's books, anthologies, translations, and a two-volume autobiography. For 20 years, he penned a column, From Here to Now, for the Chicago Defender, the largest African-American newspaper in the country. Perhaps because of his constant brushes with poverty, Langston Hughes writes very grateful letters to those who mentored and supported him financially, including W.E.B. Du Bois, who printed Hughes's first poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, in The Crisis. The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep, like the rivers. Hughes wrote that poem in 1921. 
And the letters begin that year as well, when Hughes, dead broke and alone in New York, attending Columbia University, pleads with his father to send him money. He managed to scrape up enough to stay in college for a year, but discouraged and penniless, set sail for Europe, working on tramp steamers and at odd jobs in Paris and Italy. Even after Hughes became a well-known author, he often found himself short of funds when publishers and producers offered him paltry sums or were slow in paying him for his work. In more than one letter, he described himself as a, quote, literary sharecropper. But he paid these debts forward, helping to find funds and publishers for promising young authors, including Ralph Ellison, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Alice Walker, whose first story was published by Hughes in an anthology he edited in 1967. Letter to Arna Bontoms, July 17, 1954. Dear Arna, well, since my autobiography is due at the publishers the day after Labor Day, and I haven't written a word of it yet, I thought this quiet Sunday afternoon I would get started. So I sat down and wrote three chapters, some 30 pages, between 4 p.m. and now 3 a.m., which isn't bad. I hope it reads as easily as it writes. If I can keep this up, I'll have 330 pages in a month, which is with narrow margins, so that would be 400, which is a book. I meant to sort out all the stuff in the basement, take notes, etc., and work from them. But if I wait to get around to doing that, it is liable to be doomsday, and I'll never get a book done. If publishers want a really documented book, they ought to advance some documented money. Enough to do nothing else for two or three years. I refuse to share crop long for short rations. Though Hughes is most closely associated with Harlem and New York, the letters reveal his ties to many other places as well. In the 1930s, he toured the South, where memories of lynching and Jim Crow were seared into his mind and became primary subjects of his poetry. He covered the Spanish Civil War for a group of black newspapers and in the Soviet Union wrote a series for Izvestia about the colored peoples in Samarkand, Tashkent, and Central Asia. His multiple journeys to Africa, once with Odetta and Nina Simone, resulted in his compiling the anthology An African Treasury with writings by Chinue Echebe and poet Leopold Senghor, who later became president of Senegal. The next poem, Good Morning Revolution, reflects those politicizing experiences. Good morning, Revolution. You're the best friend I ever had. We're going to pal around together from now on. Say, listen, Revolution. You know the boss where I used to work? The guy that gave me the air to cut expenses. He wrote a long letter to the papers about you. Said you was a troublemaker. An alien enemy. In other words, a son of a bitch. He called up the police and told him to watch out for a guy named Revolution. You see, the boss knows you're my friend. He sees us hanging out together. He knows we're hungry and ragged and ain't got a damn thing in this world and are going to do something about it. That was Langston Hughes' poem, Good Morning, Revolution. The volume even includes letters from California, where Hughes was invited by Noel Sullivan, a wealthy arts patron, to stay in his cottage in Carmel. There he met poet Robinson Jeffers and authors Lincoln Steffens and Ella Winter, with whom he collaborated on the play Blood in the Fields about the violent farmworker strikes of the 1930s. 
But his support for the Scottsboro Boys and for the striking San Francisco longshoremen, whose action led to the 1934 general strike, and Upton Sinclair's gubernatorial campaign, as well as his writing about the Soviet Union, made Hughes a target for witch hunters and vigilantes. He eventually left California because, as he wrote, he did not want to be tarred and feathered. Letter to Sylvia Chen, October 18, 1934, Carmel, California. Dearest Sylvia, I got all your letters and was mighty glad to hear from you each time. Carmel was pretty exciting for a while. California turned Hitler on us since the general strike was broken, but I'm still about. I stayed away from Carmel about a month, not wishing to be tarred and feathered. I have to stop the story to tell you how much I love you. And if vigilantes, 100% California Americans, had chased me all the way to Moscow and you, then everything would be okay. But I'm back again now. As it is, I'm still half a world away from the sweetest little girl I've ever seen. I wish I could have come to the writer's conference, but I wanted to finish my book and play first before I was rudely interrupted by the Red Scare and had to hide my manuscripts, as did other Carmel writers, all of which has interrupted me again from telling you I love you. Anyhow, we've got to pick out a meeting place. California and you are too far apart. So tell me what you think. Maybe I'll have some money by spring. I am jealous of those other writers seeing you dance at the conference. Love and kisses, Lang. At close to 500 pages, the collection shows how prolific a letter writer Hughes was. Editor Rompersad notes that these letters, often pounded out on a typewriter late into the night, are only the tip of the iceberg. No wonder Hughes wrote, I have no time to write letters, and lamented that he had so many unanswered letters that my drawers are so full I'm moving my socks over. The editors note that their research turned up enough letters to publish 20 large volumes. Among those letters was one, dated May 2, 1963, addressed to a New Jersey high school student who had sent Langston Hughes her term paper on his poetry. I'm fortunate that one late night, Hughes pulled out my letter from the many in his socks drawer to answer. Letter to Elaine Ellenson. Dear Miss Ellenson, thank you very much for letting me see your most interesting essay on my poetry. I would indeed like to have a copy to keep, so I'm having my stenog type it for me and will return the original to you in a few days. You have explored an aspect of my work I had not consciously thought of myself and did not realize so many of my poems had so similar a theme and the same sort of endings. You are discovering myself to me. Sincerely yours, Langston Hughes. Guests today were Elaine Ellenson and Greg Bridges, and we've been discussing the selected letters of Langston Hughes, edited by Arnold Rampersad and David Roselle, with Krista Fratantoro. was created in a historic collaboration between Langston Hughes reading his own poetry and the music of Charles Mingus and Leonard Feather.
a drowsy, syncopated tune, rocking back and forth to a mellow croon. I heard a Negro play. Down on Lenox Avenue the other night, by the pale, dull pallor of a one-bulb light, he did a lazy sway. He did a lazy sway to the tune of those weary blues. With his ebony hands on each ivory key, he made that poor piano moan with melody. Oh, blues. Swaying to and fro on his rickety stool, he played that sad, raggy tune like a musical fool. Sweet blues. Coming from a black man's soul. Oh, blues. In a deep song voice, with a melancholy tone, I heard that Negro sing, that old piano moan. Ain't got nobody in all this world. Ain't got nobody but myself. I was going to quit my frowning and put my troubles on the shelf. Thump, 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 went his foot on the floor. He played a few chords, then he sang some more. I got the weary blues and I can't be satisfied. Got the weary blues and can't be satisfied. I ain't happy no more and I wish that I had died. Far into the night he crooned that tune. The stars went out and so did the moon. The singer stopped playing and went to bed. While the weary blues echoed through his head. He slept like a rock or a man that's dead. I don't dare start thinking in the morning. I don't dare start thinking in the morning. If I thought thoughts in bed, them thoughts would bust my head. So I don't dare start thinking in the morning. I don't dare remember in the morning. Don't dare remember in the morning. If I recall the day before, I wouldn't get up no more. So I don't dare remember in the morning.
was so sick last night, I didn't hardly know my mind. So sick last night, I didn't know my mind. I drunk some bad liquor that almost made me blind. I had a dream last night. I thought I was in hell. I dreamt last night I thought I was in hell. I woke up and looked around me. Babe, your mouth was open like a well. I said, baby, baby, please don't snore so loud. Baby, please, please don't snore so loud. You're just a little bit of woman, but you sound like a great big crowd. Could be 18th and Vine and still be true. Could be 5th and Mound. Could be Rampart. When you pawn my watch, you pawn my heart. Could be you love me. Could be that you don't. Might be that you'll come back. Like as not, you won't. Hastings Street is weary, also Lennox Avenue. Any place is dreary without my watch and you. Cause you don't love me is awful, awful hard. Gypsy done showed me my bad luck card. There ain't no good left in this world for me. Gypsy done told me, unlucky as can be. I don't know what poor weary me can do. Gypsy says, I'd kill myself if I was you. Everybody tells me so. I'm a bad, bad man. Everybody tells me so. I take my meanness and my liquor everywhere I go. I beat my wife and I beat my side gal too. Beat my wife and I beat my side gal too. I don't know why I do it, but it keeps me from feeling blue. I'm so bad, I don't even want to be good. So bad, 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 I don't even want to be good. 
I'm going to the devil, and I wouldn't go to heaven if I could. To the river, I sat down on the bank. I tried to think but couldn't, so I jumped in and sang. I came up once and hollered. I came up twice and cried. If that water hadn't been so cold, I might have sunk and died. But it was cold in that water. It was cold. Took the elevator, sixteen floors above the ground. I thought about my baby and thought I would jump down. I stood there and I hollered. I stood there and I cried. If it hadn't been so high up there, I might have jumped and died. But it was high. It was high. Well, since I'm still here living, I guess I will live on. I could have died for love, but for living I was born. So you may hear me holler, and you may see me cry, but I'll be dog, sweet baby, if you're gonna see me die. Life is fine, fine as wine. Life is fine. Don't let your dog curb you. Don't let your dog curb you. Curb your doggy like you ought to do, but don't let that dog curb you. You may play folks cheap, act all rough and tough, but a dog can tell when you're full of stuff. Them little old mutts look all scraggly and bad. Got more sense than some people ever had. Cur dog, vice dog, carry blue. Just don't let your dog curb you. reason I stay alive. My motto, as I live and learn, is dig 
and be dug in return. Well, that's the motto of a hepcat. But unfortunately, this particular hepcat didn't live very long. He was cut down in the prime of his youth by the long scythe of too much good timing. One night, because in Harlem we have night funerals, this young man was going down Lenox Avenue in a box. A long box. Dead in there. Dead in there. Sometimes a night funeral going by carries home a cool bop daddy. Hearse and flowers guarantee he'll never hype another patty. It's hard to believe, but dead in there, he'll never lay a hype nowhere. He's my ace boy, gone away. Wake up and live! He used to say, squares who couldn't dig him, plant him now, out where it makes no diff, no how. You just heard Langston Hughes in collaboration with Charles Mingus and Leonard Feather. This next poem is by me, Nina Serrano. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. It's ridiculous to have to state it. It's so obvious because all life matters and is sacred. But it becomes necessary when every morning on Facebook another video of police taking a black life, hands held up in surrender, handcuffed behind the back, or a pregnant body thrown on the ground and beaten. Black Lives Matter. In Oakland, we know. Four nights of protest marches, rain or dry, of huge police presence on the street and droning helicopters above. In Oakland, we know black lives matter. Traffic slowed, freeway blocked, city life disrupted to underline and pronounce to the nation that black lives matter. You just heard me, Nina Serrano, reading my poem, Black Lives Matter. Accompanied by saxophonist Charlie Girk. This has been Nina Severno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening.
Here's another community-powered announcement from KPFA. On Saturday, June 13th at 6 p.m. at the East Bay Center for the Performing Arts in Richmond, the Richmond Regla Cuba Friendship Committee presents two films by award-winning Afro-Cuban filmmaker Gloria Rolando. The program includes a showing of Eyes of the Rainbow, the story of Asada Shakur, and Gloria's most recent film, Reembarque. This is a benefit for the Richmond Regla Cuba Friendship Committee. Join us on Saturday, June 13th, 6 p.m., Two great films by Cuban filmmaker Gloria Rolando at the East Bay Center for the Performing Arts. That's at 339 11th Street in Richmond. For more information, call 510-620-6581 or tickets at brownpapertickets.com. 